For our lesson of the day, we are in Isaiah chapter 11. I will begin in verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and a lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the season of Advent, a season of hope and expectation a season when you train us to rest in your promises and to look for their fulfillment in Christ Jesus. We know all of your promises are yes and amen in him. And so continue to fulfill those promises. Come to be with us. Come into our midst this day and do the work you have promised to do. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When a couple is expecting a baby, they inevitably think about their child's future. What will this child be like? What color eyes will he have? What color hair will he have? What will he grow up to be? Who will he marry? An expecting couple can't help but ask those kinds of questions. But now imagine this. Imagine a couple was given a baby book for their child. Before their child was even born, a book with all kinds of pictures of the child that is yet to be. Indeed, imagine if those parents were given a scrapbook of their child's life with all kinds of snapshots of what he's going to grow up to be like, what he's going to grow up to do, who he's going to grow up to marry. Well, really, in a way, that's what you have in the prophetic passages of the Old Testament, passages like Isaiah 11. These are pages torn from the baby book of the Messiah, the baby book of Jesus Christ, if you will. These passages like Isaiah 11 are scrapbooks for Jesus revealed hundreds of years before he's even born. Indeed, you can think of the whole Old Testament as a kind of messianic scrapbook given ahead of time. Pictures and images and previews and stories of what the Messiah will be like when he comes. Now, they don't tell us his hair color or eye color, but they do tell us what he will grow up to be and to do. They tell us who he will marry. They show us what his character will be, what his calling will be. They show us the success of his mission. Isaiah 11 is really a promise 
This is God promising to send to his people a Messiah, a certain kind of Messiah, a certain kind of king. And that's really what the season of Advent is all about. It's all about looking at God's promises. It's opening up these promises and seeing what God has said he would do. And then seeing as well how those promises have now come to fulfillment and are coming to fulfillment and will continue to come to fulfillment in the Messiah, in his birth, in his life, in his death and resurrection, in his present reign, even in his final coming again at the last day. This passage in Isaiah 11 opens by giving us the Messiah's family tree. And I really mean that. It really uses tree imagery to describe the family of Jesus, the family he will come from. The Messiah will grow out of Jesse's family tree. Well, who is Jesse? Of course, this is Jesse, David's father. And so the Messiah will come from royal stock. He will be a new David. He will be a king, the true David, great David's greater son. As Isaiah describes it, the imagery he uses here shows us that Jesse's family had fallen on hard times. It's as if Jesse's family tree had been cut down, whittled down to a stump. This is probably a reference to Israel's exile when the monarchy in Israel and in Judah was suspended and the Jews were under foreign domination. It looked like Israel's royal tree was dead. Jesse's tree had been cut to a stump. But Isaiah is showing us here the family tree of Jesse is not dead. A branch will grow out of his roots, the branch of Messiah. Now I keep talking about Messiah. I keep referring to Jesus as Messiah. What does that mean? Messiah means anointed one. And that's really the next thing Isaiah shows us, that this one to be born of Jesse's family will be anointed, but it's not going to be just any anointing, not an anointing merely with oil. He's going to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 2, we have a sevenfold description of the Spirit's work in him. He will have the fullness of the Spirit. Seven is the number of perfection or completeness in Scripture. He will have the Spirit without measure. As John 3, as John tells us in his Gospel in chapter 3, he will have the Spirit without limit. A sevenfold anointing of the Spirit will rest upon him. The passage goes on. We find he will be a judge. Indeed, he will be the perfect judge, issuing perfect judgments. You see that really in verses 3, 4, and 5 of our prophecy as they describe the kind of judge he will be, the character he will have as a judge, a judge whose eyes penetrate to the truth of things. He will always judge righteously. And then verse 6 shows him with animals. It's interesting that we know from Luke's gospel that when Jesus did enter into the world, he was born in a manger and placed in a feed box. He was born in a place where domestic animals were kept. The scrapbook of Jesus includes pictures of him with animals, pictures of him with his pets. In the prophetic scriptures, uh, he is surrounded by animals. You have that here. And then, of course, when he's actually born, he's born in a place where animals would be present. But it's very interesting. Notice the unusual pairing of animals in Isaiah's prophecy. The wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, the lion and the calf uh, together. What does it mean? Why are these animals that normally would be enemies of one another, why are they put together here 
living in harmony with one another. Well, it's interesting if you think about how animals are used symbolically in the Scripture. Certainly in the book of Leviticus, we see that different kinds of animals represent different kinds of people. So, for example, the clean animals represent the Israelites. The unclean animals represent the Gentile nations, the pagan nations. Uh, That's certainly in the background here. You've also got the book of Daniel. We could point to in the book of Daniel, different kinds of animals represent different nations. And I think that's really the significance here. These animals represent different Gentile nations. And so if the lion and the calf are now lying down together, what's happening? It means this Messiah is a new Adam. He is the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. He's a new Adam, a second Adam, who will tame the animals, the wild animals of the nations. He will make those wild beasts those those seemingly untamable beasts, his own pets. He will subdue them. Just as the first Adam was supposed to subdue the animals and rule over them, so with the second Adam, the last Adam, he will subdue the animals and rule over them. Only in this particular instance, the animals really are representing the Gentile nations. This means he will bring peace to the nations of the world. He will reconcile the nations to God and he will reconcile the nations to one another. And that's what you see here. Normally people who would be at war with one another are made to be at peace. They're able to live at harmony through this Spirit-filled, Spirit-anointed Messiah. Verse 8 seems to be a baby book picture. We have the nursing child playing by the cobra's hole, the weaned child sticking his hand in the viper's den. Think about the the viper, the cobra. How are snakes used in Scripture? Well, we know in the very beginning in Genesis 3, Satan used a serpent. He spoke through a serpent to bring about the fall of humanity, to deceive the woman and lead the man into sin. Well, now you've got a, a child who's playing with snakes. What does it mean? It means the Messiah is going to overcome the serpent. Even the serpent will be defeated by this Messiah. It's interesting, you know, a lot of times in our manger scenes, we'll have different kinds of animals that probably would have been there. Well, maybe we should have big serpents in our manger scenes as well because baby Jesus came to defeat the serpent. And then verses 9 and 10 really give you the result of his ministry. Here we're looking ahead to the whole of his career. When, when this Messiah comes and does all these things, what will it look like? What will be the outcome? How will he shape history? Well, verses 9 and 10 give you the result of his ministry. Where will his career lead him? He will be a king who brings peace and salvation to the whole world. He will bring the knowledge of the Lord to the whole world. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the promise. How fully do the waters cover the sea? Well, the water covers the sea completely. That's what the sea is. It's water. Wherever the water covers, that's sea. It's covered completely by water. He comes to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 10 goes on to say he will erect a banner. He will put up a banner for all the people and the Gentiles will seek him. They will find a resting place in him. His resting place shall be glorious. The nations will flow into his kingdom. They'll come under his reign. It's obvious then that Advent is about the coming of a king, which means that Advent is political. 
which means really you can't observe Advent rightly without talking about politics. Advent bears upon the political realm. If you listen closely to the hymns we sing this time of year and of course into Christmas as well, it is amazing how much of that hymnody has to do with nations and with kings and with rulers and how Jesus comes to transform the nations, to subdue the rulers to himself, to to be their king, their lord. It's all over the place in our hymnody this time of year. You cannot privatize the meaning of Advent. You can't just turn it into a private little celebration of a kind of household deity. No, Advent very much takes place in the public square. This is about a promised ruler coming to stake his claim. It's about a promised ruler coming to take his throne and reign over all. What does Advent mean politically? What are the politics of Advent? What does it mean for American politics specifically? How does Advent impinge upon American politics even in this moment? seems that in our culture, people swing back and forth between two extremes when it comes to politics. We are either totally cynical about politics or we are totally obsessed with politics. We either get really cynical about anything political and we just see it as completely hopeless and even pointless perhaps, or we obsess over politics. It becomes an all-consuming passion. And I bet, you know, for those of you, which is probably most of you who are on social media or Facebook, you see a lot of both of these. You just came through a season, an election season, where you saw a lot of both of this. People who are saying, everything matters on who gets elected, and people saying, you know, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> who cares? It's not going to make any difference. It's not going to change anything. Those two extremes, cynicism or obsession. The cynicism really is understandable, at least to a point. Politics really is the source of continual frustration and disappointment for us, is it not? And this is not anything new. The ancient uh, Greek uh, fable teller Aesop said, the petty thieves we hang, the great ones we elect to office. Not much has changed, has it? Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, when a politician is running for office, he is an expert in getting things done. When he is in office, he is an expert in why they can't be done. How often have you seen that? All kinds of promises made. When I get elected, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. Gets into office, oh, we can't do X, Y, and Z because of A, B, and C. (laughs) Happens again and again. Uh, Chesterton also said in another place, he said, it's terrible to contemplate how few politicians are hanged. Presumably because they deserve to be hanged, and not just because they're politicians. We might say how many, uh, how few politicians are indicted or arrested uh, in our day or convicted. Uh, in another place, Chesterton said, we should try to make politics as local as possible. That is, keep the politicians near enough to kick them. Okay. Pa- Chesterton, you see the cynicism. Uh, Groucho Marx, <laughs> politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly, and applying the wrong remedies. You see Groucho Marx's cynicism about politics, or Clarence Darrow. When I was a boy, I was told that anybody could become president. Well, I'm starting to believe it. (laughs) Or Will Rogers. I think it was Will Rogers who said, the problem with political jokes is they get elected. 
Someone once said, politics is the subtle art of getting votes from the poor and campaign donations from the rich by promising to protect them from each other. See, the real problem you have in a democracy of some sort is not so much that the politicians can be bribed, though that's always a problem, but it's that the voters can be bribed. That's really the biggest problem of all in a democracy. Cynicism uh, cynicism about politics is fully understandable. It's fully understandable. But at the same time, it ignores God's positive purpose for civil government. Scripture is really clear. God has ordained the powers that be for our good and to punish evildoers, to praise and protect the good and to punish those who do evil. Romans 13 makes that clear. We read it this morning. Romans 13 actually calls the civil magistrate God's deacon. That's the word that's used. The civil ruler is God's deacon. He is God's servant, God's minister. And Romans 13 makes it clear. God uses civil rulers to administer justice in certain areas of life. And indeed to enact his vengeance against criminals. Now yes, many times civil government departs from that and actually becomes an agent of injustice rather than justice. Augustine said... What is a kingdom without justice but just a band of pirates? And that's true. Uh, sometimes civil government departs from its purpose of enacting God's justice against criminals. But in principle, we need to see civil government is ordained by God to maintain order and to serve the common good. And so we should curb our cynicism about what God has instituted for our good, even if our sin often wrecks it. John Calvin, who actually had to flee from his native homeland of France because the king, King Francis in France, was seeking to persecute him. So Calvin knew a thing or two about how rulers could become instruments of injustice. John Calvin still went on to call civil office a most sacred and honorable calling. Indeed, he said it is the most honorable of all stations in mortal life. And he goes on to explain, it is this honorable and sacred calling because the one who rules is invested with, quote, divine authority and, quote, represents the person of God. Civil government is ordained by God. We can't just write off politics and get totally cynical about it. But on the other hand, there are those who obsess over politics, who make politics their passion. Politics becomes the be-all and end-all. They're given to a kind of messianic politics where everything hinges on the next election, where we look to politics to save us. For these folks, politics becomes really an alternative religion, a substitute religion. And you really see this, I think, with a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds election times. Even midterm elections now have become a matter of life and death for some people. You know, when somebody says, we could literally lose everything if so-and-so doesn't win this election, well, then you know somebody has crossed the line from political engagement into a kind of political idolatry. No, there's never going to be an election where everything is at stake. We must keep politics in its limited and proper place. There's an article that came out not too long ago by Kevin Williamson. I commend the article to you. It's called, The World Keeps Not Ending. And this is one of the things he addresses in his article. This is what he says. He says, in a healthy society, politics is a small part of life. 
There is a life outside of politics, and there are places and situations that are outside politics. So you shouldn't politicize everything. Politics has its own sphere, but it's a limited sphere. So the problem is there are many people who won't keep politics in its place. He says you meet a lot of these people at different kinds of political rallies. And he says when you meet them, these people are categorically unhappy, bereft, and adrift in a way that is only tangentially related to politics. They turn to politics, this is, this is key, they turn to politics to provide a sense of meaning that once might have been provided by family or religion. Two anchors from which many of us enlightened moderns have cut ourselves away. But politics provides a sense of meaning only when we convince ourselves that there is a great deal at stake. The people who fall into politics as a source of personal meaning must believe that what is at stake is everything. He says political fanaticism then is not rooted in ideology. Rather, it is the hollow clanging sound that social life makes when banging up against an empty soul. People turn to politics because they're empty. Their lives are devoid of meaning otherwise, so they seek meaning in politics. Williamson goes on, one more line from the article, the angry partisan cannot believe that life is good because he must then ask himself, if life is good, then why am I not enjoying it? Why do I feel so alone, so frustrated, and so meaningless? This is what happens when we take God out of politics. Politics itself becomes a kind of God. Again, G.K. Chesterton, I'm quoting him a lot today, but he's good on this kind of thing. Once abolish the true God, and the government becomes God. See, if there is no Messiah above government, then government becomes Messiah. Government becomes messianic. T.S. Eliot put it this way in his 1939 work, The Idea of a Christian Society. He said, if you will not have God, and he is a jealous God, then you must pay your respects to Hitler or Stalin. In other words, if God is not the foundation of public life, if God is banished from public life, then the state's going to become God. And when the state becomes God, what do you get? You get a Hitler or a Stalin who see themselves basically as God on earth. That's what you get if you banish God from the political. I like what Richard John Newhouse said. He said the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. Our problems as individuals and as a society are not primarily political. And so politics is not going to fix them. We have to get that into our heads. It is foolish to trust in politics or in political parties or in political programs. Obviously, politics can make life better or worse, depending on who you have leading you, ruling over you. There's no doubt about that. But we must never put our trust or our confidence there. Psalm 148 says, put no confidence in princes. There is only one prince you can trust in, and that is the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one you can trust in. He's the one who fulfills Isaiah 11. He is God's appointed king. He's the perfect judge. He's the good king. He's the loving ruler who gives himself for his people. Isaiah 9, we also read this morning, also describes the coming one, the coming Messiah as a king. It says the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be our true 
king. And so where does our politics start? Our politics starts with this. Jesus is Lord. That is our fundamental political claim. John Newton, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, and a slave trader who was converted uh, to faith later in life, he said there's only one political slogan, there's only one political maxim that comforts me, it's this, the Lord reigns. Not who's king or president, That's no, there's no comfort in that. The comfort is in the lordship of Christ. So what does Isaiah 11 mean for our politics, for American politics, specifically in our time and place? What does Isaiah 11 mean for us? Sometimes I think we shy away from these kinds of questions because we have seen, and many of us, if we're old enough, in an up-close and personal way, we have seen the shortcomings of the so-called religious right of the last generation. We've seen what can happen to the gospel and the mission of the church when Christians get a little too hungry for political power and how that can lead to all kinds of compromise. You know, we've seen what a sort of God and country nationalism can do. We've seen the bad things that happen when we start to confuse the U.S. of A. with the church of Jesus Christ in the purposes of God. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to go there. Because American Christians have not always understood the centrality of the church, because we've had a very low ecclesiology, not really thinking very highly of the church, we have not understood that the church is God's holy nation and his royal priesthood, that this church that's made up of people from every nation under heaven is God's holy nation. And because we've failed to see that, we've had a tendency to fill that void with our own nation, sometimes treating America as a kind of redeemer nation, as a kind of substitute for the church. But while there's no doubt that America has been greatly influenced by the church, and we should be very grateful for that, uh, a lot of other nations have been influenced by the church as well, America can never take the place of the church. That should be obvious, but sometimes it gets confused. And sometimes even Christians who are well-intentioned and running for office or even after they're elected use a kind of rhetoric that confuses the place of America with the place of the church. America is not going to last forever. The church will. America is not the world's last best hope. The world's last best hope is going to be found in the church as the church proclaims Christ. The mission of God's people is not to make the world safe for democracy. The mission of God's people is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The church is the body and bride of Christ. America is not. God's purposes for creation and for history are centered in the church and flow through the church. As Ephesians 1 says, God rules over all things for the sake of the church. You cannot say any of those things about America. God's house and the White House are two different things. The church's mission is transcendent in a way that America's never can be. Our heavenly citizenship in God's we can call it the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, whatever you want to call it, our heavenly citizenship always trumps our earthly citizenship as Americans. Our heavenly citizenship in God's kingdom is always greater than our American citizenship. And that's why whenever the two citizenships come in conflict, we always obey God rather than men. You know, we never say, my country right or wrong. 
You know, G.K. Chesterton said that's like saying, you know, my mother, drunk or sober. It, it just it doesn't, it doesn't work. Precisely because we are good churchmen and churchwomen, we can be critical of our nation when we need to and appreciative of our nation when we should be. But saying that the nation can't be the church, it can't take the place of the church, does not make nations, including America, irrelevant in God's purposes. It's not as though saying the church is central to God's purposes means that nations have no place in the purposes of God. No, God still recognizes the existence of nations. You see this in the Great Commission. Go and disciple what? Disciple the nations. Not just individuals, but nations, which means in the totality of their cultural and institutional life, they are to be discipled and taught everything that Jesus commanded. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 18 says this, and there's no reason to think that this has been rescinded. Jeremiah 18 makes it clear that God still deals with nations. He judges nations in history. God says there, at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will destroy it, If that nation turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. And then the Lord goes on. He says, if at any time I declare I will build up a nation and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, I will turn from the good I intended to do to it. A good example of this in history is the nation of Assyria with its capital city, Nineveh. God intended to destroy the Ninevites. And God sent them Jonah to let them know about this. And when Jonah got there, the people repented. And so God relented. He did not destroy the Assyrian capital. Now he did later. Actually, the book of Nahum deals with the reality that later on, Assyria went back to its wicked ways. And then the nation was judged. But the nation was spared for a long time because the people turned from their wicked ways. God judges nations in history. By what standard does God judge nations in history? Jeremiah 18 says it is listening to God's voice. That's the standard. You find this all over Scripture. Psalm 2 is written by David. And at the end of that psalm, David addresses the Gentile rulers in the other nations round about Israel. And he gives them his kingly counsel, his royal advice. The psalm ends with David's advice to the Gentile nations, really to the Gentile kings. He says to these kings, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his anger is quickly kindled. But blessed are those who seek refuge in the Lord. That's David's advice to other kings. Real similar to the kind of advice that Daniel gave. Daniel served in several different pagan administrations and he always gave the same kind of advice that David gives there in Psalm 2. You see, Jesus is the judge of the nations even in history. Isaiah 11, we read it, describes it as well. Describes Messiah striking the nations with the rod, his rod of iron and slaying them with the breath of his lips. He is going to judge the nations in history, blessing them or cursing them according to their faithfulness, their response to him. In Acts 17, the apostles get in big trouble with Caesar's deputies. Why do they get in trouble? Because they are proclaiming there is another king, Jesus Christ. They're saying there's a king above Caesar. Caesar is the king of the Roman Empire, but there's a higher king Caesar is going to have to answer to. This higher king, his name is Jesus. 
Again and again, we see this in Scripture. God interacts with nations on the stage of history. And nations are clearly made to rise or fall in the long run based on how they respond to Christ, how they respond to God's voice. The church and the civil order are clearly distinct. They have their own zones of responsibility, if you will. Church and state are distinct institutions each with their own jobs to do. And each should stay in its lane and and, and not cross over. There shouldn't be any confusion there. But church and state are both accountable to God. The church certainly is accountable to God. We know that. But the state is accountable to God as well. The state, just as much as the church, is under the lordship of Christ. Jesus Christ is the king of the world. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords right now. And the fact that there are some citizens of the world who do not acknowledge Him as such does not dethrone Him. He is King whether they want Him to be King or not. More specifically, Jesus Christ is the King of these United States. And even though the men who wrote our Constitution chose to not explicitly acknowledge Him as such, He remains king over America. And all other rulers are His servants. Responsible to obey Him. Accountable to Him. Subject to His judgment. If they rebel, He's been given a rod of iron to shatter them into pieces. The Old Testament Advent text like Isaiah 11 prophesy what the gospel openly proclaims. Jesus is king and he is king over everything. Jesus is the sovereign ruler and judge over all. He is Lord. And yes, there's a sense in which we live in a democratic republic and we get to elect those who rule over us in the civil sphere. But there's another sense, a deeper sense, in which we really live in a Christocracy. Every nation of the world is a Christocracy. Because Jesus reigns over all. Jesus is the King of America. Put that on your Christmas card and see what happens. Christ rules over America and America answers to Jesus. Our rulers will answer to Jesus. And this is why Christians have always argued that the powers of civil government are not absolute. They must be limited. Only Christ's government is absolute. All other rulers have a limited authority. There is a limited scope. There are limitations on their powers. Government is not God. And while government can do certain things well, and is called by God to do certain things, government cannot do everything. And it should not try. And government is not autonomous. Its rulers should not pretend to be autonomous. Civil magistrates must recognize that their authority not just comes from below, from the people who elect them, it ultimately comes from above, from God who put them there, God who put them in this position and will hold them accountable for it. And so what what are the politics of Advent? What, What should we hope for, for America? What should we work for in America, given given these realities? We should hope for and work for an America that honors King Jesus, that honors His church, an America who respects what God has revealed in Scripture and is responsive to what God has revealed in creation. 
We should hope for and work for an America that respects God's law. All that God has commanded. That's the Great Commission, right? To teach all that God has commanded. That's what we want for our nation. We want a nation that respects what God says about sex and about marriage and about the unborn. We want a nation that respects what God says about the role and the limits of civil government, the state. We want a nation that respects what God says about theft and about generosity. We want a nation that respects what God says about kindness and about humility and about care for the poor. We should hope for and work for an America that in every way conforms to the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what we want for our own nation is, of course, what we should want for every nation on earth because Jesus reigns over all. We should thank God for what he's given to us in America. There's no doubt we have all kinds of privileges. Amazing privileges come with being American. And in a time when it's fashionable to loathe America, we should express all kinds of gratitude for those great privileges in all kinds of ways. This is a great nation we are a part of. I personally wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I think it's the best place to live. You have to live in an earthly kingdom somewhere. I think this is the best one to be. But we should also seek to reform our nation. We should not hesitate to be critical of our nation where she falls short of God's will. Because America, like every other nation, is under the lordship of Christ. Advent's prophecies remind us that we have not proclaimed the gospel unless we have called on the kings and rulers of the earth to acknowledge and serve Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing less will do. Advent anticipates the king. Christmas celebrates his arrival. And so in light of what Advent and Christmas mean, I call on President Trump with King David to kiss the Son, the Lord Jesus, lest he be angry. I call on all nine Supreme Court justices to bow the knee to the true judge, the judge of all judges, Jesus Christ, the only one who judges perfectly. I call on every member of Congress and our state governor and legislature and the mayors of Birmingham and Hoover and Vestavia and all the other surrounding towns. I call on the policemen who patrol our streets. I call on every civic official right down to the dog catcher to fear God, to fear the Lord Jesus, to serve Him and to obey Him. Why? Who am I to call on these people to do these things? Why do this? Because Scripture commands it. And God will judge us as a nation accordingly. Now someone will say, but if this happens, won't it destroy freedom in America? Won't it destroy religious freedom? Won't it destroy people's rights? I mean, shouldn't the state seek to be religiously neutral? Well, there's anything that's clear from Scripture. No state can be religiously neutral. Every state is a theocracy of some sort. Every state has a God and legislates morality, legislates right and wrong in terms of that God. This doesn't mean there would not be a distinction between sins and crimes or anything like that. But it does mean that our state has a responsibility, as every state under heaven does, to acknowledge where political authority comes from. We live in an ostensibly pluralistic society But pluralism always has its limits. 
And pluralism is never self-sustaining. There's always some kind of religiously grounded framework for whatever kind of pluralism you have. And so, yes, while we're a nation that's known for its religious freedom, Americans have always placed limits on religious freedoms. Muslims are not allowed to practice jihad. Satanists are not allowed to sacrifice cats. We don't let Mormons practice polygamy. We don't let Native Americans use hallucinogenic drugs in their religious rituals as they did before becoming part of our nation. And in general, I would say those are those, those examples I just gave you are good limits on religious freedom. Religious freedom is never absolute. And of course, that raises a question then, how are we going to know what kinds of freedom to allow or not allow? What kind of framework should we have in place as a society to support religious freedom and to protect human rights? It's a huge question. I'm not going to try to answer it all here, but I just want to say this. The reality is, the truth is, these ideas that as Americans we largely take for granted these ideas we have about religious freedom and about human rights are actually unknown in most societies in the history of the world with the exception of those countries that have at least to some degree been influenced by the Christian faith. You will not find doctrines of true religious freedom and liberty of conscience emerging in pagan societies or Muslim societies or Buddhist societies or Hindu societies or secular societies, except to the degree those societies have been influenced by the Christian faith. In other words, the doctrine of religious liberty is a Christian doctrine. Only those societies that in some fundamental way acknowledge Jesus as Lord will be able to preserve freedom over the long haul. And so I put it this way, in general, non-Christians will have far more freedom in a Christianized society than Christians would have in a non-Christian society. The Christian faith is the source of civil and religious liberties for all. See, public acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord actually serves the common good, even for non-Christians. One of the greatest gifts of the Christian faith to the whole world is this notion of inalienable rights. Rooted in the fact that God is our creator and has made us in his image. That's right there in our own Declaration of Independence. But to the degree that the Christian faith is rejected, human rights lose any stable, lasting foundation and thus begin to erode. And that's not to say that Christians or Christian societies have always respected human rights the way they should have. We know in our own individual lives how how far short we often fall of what we should be and do as Christians. That's also true at the societal or cultural level. But the reality is there is no secular basis, no secular grounding for human rights. There's simply no secular worldview that can justify human rights. There is no other religious tradition that has a history of standing for and supporting human rights other than the Christian tradition. And thus the Declaration of Independence, no matter how much we might say it was influenced by the Enlightenment or by other sources, and certainly it was in various ways, it's the kind of document that could only be produced by a generally Christian civilization. The Christian God, the Creator, whose creation story is told in Genesis 1 and 2, 
is the only God on record historically and philosophically who can underwrite and secure the universal rights enumerated in the Declaration of Independence and in our Bill of Rights. The Declaration makes reference to self-evident truths. Well, those truths are only self-evident because the Creator made them to be so. They're a reflection of His creational design. They're not neutral truths. They're not truths that would still be true whether or not a Creator God exists. They're only true because there is a Creator. And so again, concepts we largely take for granted, like innocent till proven guilty, and due process, and trial by jury, and the right to face your accuser, and the same law for the rich and the poor, all of these are concepts that grew out of reflection on and application of biblical law. They're all found there in the Torah. And they have not arisen anywhere in any society that was not influenced by the Bible or did not take biblical law seriously. They are part of an explicitly Christian tradition. Seculars today will tell us they're religiously neutral. No, they're stealing from our worldview. They're borrowing capital from the Christian worldview. We have people today who want to keep the fruit of the Christian faith in the form of the rule of law. But if we really want the rule of law to remain, we've got to have its theological root as well. This is what God calls us to. We should be satisfied with nothing less. T.S. Eliot, I made reference already to his book, The Idea of a Christian Society, published in 1939. This is what he says. However bigoted the announcement may sound, the Christian can be satisfied with nothing less than a Christian organization of society. He goes on to explain what that means. But he says we should be satisfied with nothing less. I think Eliot's right. And I would say the good news in all of this is this. This is not just what we should hope for and work for. It's what God has promised to us. Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11 tells us the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Gentiles will seek this king. They will rally to his banner. What we're commanded to produce in the Great Commission, nations that are discipled, is exactly what God has promised to give us through the reign of his son. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one in whom all God's promises are fulfilled. Promises for your personal salvation, yes, but also promises that transform the nations. That's the good news. That's the good news of Advent and Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for giving us Your Son to be our King. Father, we pray that we may submit to Him in our own lives, that we may fear Him and trust Him and obey Him. And we pray that our rulers in their capacity as public, civic officials would do so as well. Because we know He alone has wisdom. We know all authority has been given to Him. Rulers only rule His pleasure. And so we pray that You would spare our rulers, that they may not be smashed with His rod of iron that they may seek refuge in him and rule accordingly. This we pray in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.